Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening. I hope that you're... Tuesday has gone well. I hope the work week has been treating you well. But whether you have been having the best week of your life or the worst week of your life or nothing that really stands out, we are glad that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening in order to join us here on That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan and those who are listening. So much appreciate you allowing us to be at home this evening. Again, this program is not just here for you just to listen. We are glad you're listening, but we also want you to interact with us. Maybe you don't have a question. Maybe you have a topic. Maybe it's something that for years, maybe even decades, in the back of your mind, you have thought, why does the Bible say this? Why do preachers say this? Why does the Christian faith promote this? Or why doesn't the Bible say something? We would love to hear your suggested topic. Again, I've said it many times. Pastor has said it. We want this program to be practical. And the best way to do that is to know what is on your mind and on your heart. And we would like to hear your suggested topics so that we can discuss them in a future episode of That's Truth. We have three questions that have come in that we're going to start out the program with and go ahead and send in your question or call in with your question and we will send it to Pastor Murphy when it comes in. Pastor, this question came from a listener. I decided to leave my alcoholic husband. He always took care of me and made sure I was taken care of, but his drinking and the feeling that he can't open up pushed me to divorce. Why do I feel so much regret? How do I feel hope for new love? I feel numb to any future love that I never want to try it again. Alcohol was so stressful that I'm not at peace and never want to deal with it again. Well, um, sounds like a pretty desperate situation you had, but my problem, um, you said that... um, he took care of you. He made sure that your needs were taken care of. And it seems to me from all you're indicating that the main problem is the fact that he was an alcoholic. He was not, it doesn't seem as though he was abusive. That is not mentioned. Uh, and I know that uh, it, it must be difficult to live with a person who has become an alcoholic. But when you look at it from a Christian perspective, um, part of the reason why you feel um, so down and uh, a little bit in the dumps about the whole matter and have some kind of regret must um, be factored in the you didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. 
The only two biblical grounds for divorce in the scripture is adultery and is abandonment. Uh, you didn't indicate that he was involved in a, a, any kind of immorality or adultery. You didn't indicate that he had abandoned the relationship. So I think part of the problem is that you really don't have a biblical basis for um, what happened. Now, I don't know if any abuse was involved, um, and I know it must be difficult living with a person who is an alcoholic. Uh, but there are many women today who don't have alcoholic husband would give anything to have a husband to take care of them and make sure that his, their needs are met. Uh, so I just want you to know that that might have been his weakness, his fault. But the fact that he's meeting your legitimate needs and taking care of, the, of your home uh, is a very big factor as far as I'm concerned in relation to marriage. Um, I, I don't know what else to say. For example, I don't know, did you seek help? Uh, before you make the decision, did you did you try to bring your if you're a pastor? I'm assuming that you're a Christian. Did you bring your pastor get involved somehow to help him with his alcoholic problem? Did you go to AA and the AA um, Alcoholic Anonymous um, all over the Caribbean, all over the world, and they have a 12-step program that uh, it's been very very successful in 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 helping. Uh, so I, I did did you consider a temporary separation? Uh, to try to put pressure on him to try to get treatment or to change rather than um, going and having a full-fledged divorce and not giving the option of a separation so they would have some time to seriously think about the, the consequences. So I don't know a lot of factors that um, that I'm a little bit concerned about, uh, but I would have thought, if you're a believer, that you should have sought help for him. And... Um, I think if you did decide that you couldn't live with him because of whatever stress or whatever um, verbal or economic, whatever it is, abuse, then I think separation would have been the the option with the idea that if there's some transformation, some change, uh, that the marriage can be put back together. So I think part of your regret uh, is not just the fact that, you know, the alcohol, but I think part of it as a Christian must be that when you do something, you always want to feel that you're on biblical grounds. And when you do an act and you're not on biblical grounds, it creates discomfort and uneasiness within the believer. And I think that's probably what is happening to you. Um, you also indicated that um, you said something to the effect that um, you're not too sure if you never want to try again at, at love. Well, love is not something you try again at it. It's not something you try at. Love is a commitment. And when you go into a marriage, uh, for example, it's a commitment for life. It's a commitment for permanence. So it's not a matter of I'm trying. If it doesn't work, I, I jump ship and, 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 and do something else. And, of course, the vows that you make before God, um, those are vows that are taken very seriously. So um, I don't think the proper expression is to try again. Um, you should never marry somebody that you're not fully committed to for life. And uh, I'm not too sure if the language is, is kind of loose in what you're saying, but I don't like the idea of trying. I like the idea of, uh, of committing yourself to a, 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 a permanent relationship. Um, so I don't know how to advise you, um, not knowing all those kind of details. Um but I would hope that you would at least weigh them again. I mean, you divorce. It's, it's still possible that uh, if the Lord should lead and this gentleman should change on the condition that they change and get some help, uh, it may be the wisest thing to do if that happens to go back together rather than trying to seek 
uh, to find satisfaction outside that original marriage. Generally speaking, second marriages um, last about 68%. Uh, normal marriage is no 50%. So the second marriage doesn't last as long as the first. And then the third marriage is 80%. So it, it is much safer to stay within your first marriage and try a second marriage or a third marriage. Um, so that's my, my, my counsel. But I, I don't know all the details. And I am not too sure uh, specifically what you wanted me to say. But I think it's important to, to, to emphasize that whatever form of divorce, whatever causes divorce, uh, there must be biblical grounds for it. And if you find it is impossible uh, you don't have the biblical ground for it. The option would be separation with a view towards some transformation of the individual so there can be restoration. But you just don't end the marriage because you're having problems in marriage. Every marriage has problems. Alcoholism complicates it and compounds it. But it is curable, and a person can can change, and they can get help that can transform their lives and can bring back a marriage together. So I would I would recommend that course rather than trying to find it outside um, in a second marriage. Pastor, you made a reference that you should never get married unless you are committed to that person for life. What would you say to the listener who says, Pastor Murphy, that sounds great, but I made a foolish choice. In a rash moment, I married an individual and I never really had the intention of being committed to them for life. What do I do now? Well, you're married. I mean, whether you make a rash decision or not, you're married. Uh, um, you need to make your marriage work. You know, it's like what Paul says in the in the Corinthians chapter seven. Here it is that a believer um, becomes a believer, and they were already married to an unsafe person. What do you do in a situation like that? The, the ideal would be for a believer to marry a believer, but the fact is that you were married before, and you you got saved, and the person is unsaved. Now you're going to have problems anytime you have a saved person, unsaved person, you have conflict. But what does Paul say? Paul says if that person uh, wants to stay, stay within the marriage. Uh, and remember that the Paul's our argument in the whole passage is that you may be the salvific instrument to bring that person to faith and trust in Christ. See, it's not it's taken out of the realm of romance now. And you're looking at it from a salvific point of view. In other words, you're looking at saving, getting this person saved. So it's, it, he, he takes marriage and he carries it to a higher level. You know, it's not just about intimacy. It's not just about romance. It's also about bringing him to, to faith and trust in Christ. So you, as a Christian, um, can decide to live in a substandard Christian marriage in the sense that it's not the ideal, in the interest of the welfare of that person getting saved. Uh, that's what Paul suggests. And I would think if a person made a silly decision, there's a lot of people like this, by the way, uh, who have made very stupid decisions, and they'll look back at it and say, you know, I, I just was young and silly, didn't know what marriage was about, blah, blah, blah. I was just um, enthralled with the fantasy of intimacy and stuff like that, and I went into the marriage. Now when I get into the marriage, I realize that I didn't have a clue what it takes to make the marriage work. But you don't jump ship there. Now, if you're a Christian, you start working on building a marriage, and you start working on being an influence in your husband so he may get converted so that you begin to build a Christian home. Uh, so 
uh, making mistakes is not a basis for jumping out of a marriage. Marriage is a commitment that vows you made before God. And the Bible says it's better not to make vows than to make vows because God holds you responsible for those vows. But um, you can take a, a, a bad marriage and it, it can work. It all depends on uh, your Christian attitude. And uh, let me just say this as well. I don't know why we, um, none of us like suffering, right? Uh, we all want to get over, of, of, um, and then of course, the the standard of living and the different aspects that's so promoted today. Uh, you get the impression that unless you have certain things in your marriage, uh, it is substandard, you know, and so on and so forth. But we must remember that there are times when we must suffer for the sake of Christ. And um, it may be involved remaining with that alcoholic husband with a view to getting him converted and bearing some of the pain. It may be that the person you married is, is not the ideal you're looking for, but you're married. And uh, you might be, you know. In other words, once you change and the person change, the relationship can change in the whole matter. But the answer to... Um, Martial unhappiness, or you don't think you married the ideal person, is not a second marriage. It's not needed. It is a transformed life and a transformed marriage, whereas the gospel comes in and transforms people and changes their life and then changes the home. That's what's needed above just taking the easy route of jumping ship and then uh, sailing off again, and then you jump ship again, because you're never going to find the ideal uh, in, this, in this life. You referenced in your answer, you said, if you're a Christian, for the listener that says, Pastor, I think I'm a Christian. I've always gone to church, but how do I know for sure if I'm a Christian? Well, you know for sure you're a Christian if you've been convicted of your sins uh, under the power of the Spirit, and you would know when the Word of God is preached uh, before you got saved. There's always some gospel you heard, some message you heard, and it brings you to a point of conviction where you see that you need to ask forgiveness of your sins. So there has to be this conviction aspect of it. You repent of your sins, and you then put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So uh, really, to that, I would say those three things are important when it comes to salvation. There must be some conviction about sin. Nobody uh, seeks Christ and turns away from Christ unless there's a need. And that need comes about when you come under the, the weight and the, and the burden of sin. And then, of course, when you come under that weight, the question is, what do I do with it? And that's where the gospel is explained that he is the one that takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And all we need to do is to put our faith and trust in his finished work on Calvary. That is, in essence, what the gospel is about. Repentance and faith are the gist of what the gospel is all about. Alcoholism. Is it a sin or is it a disease? There's so many different views out there and strong opinions. From what I have, the latest studies have been done on it. It is both a sin and a disease. It starts off as a sin because you must practice self-control. You must not allow anything to dominate your life. And people start off drinking socially and then it changes the whole uh, brain structure. So it affects the the body in itself, causing the body to crave. So it, has, it creates that craving within the body. But it started out with an act of sin because there's so many warnings in the Bible about alcohol and not uh, becoming drinking strong drink. And the book of Proverbs mocks the, the person who becomes an alcoholic, etc., etc. And it's very, very clear in Scripture that we should not become inebriated with alcohol. So when a person has that warning and deliberately goes on that track and then he becomes addicted 
his body now begins to crave, so it becomes a, a disease in the sense that the body is now craving what it should not be craving before. But it starts off as sin and it moves into that, that realm. But God always sees drunkenness as a sin because it's the sin of violating the principle of temperance that leads to the alcoholism, which now takes over the body. And, of course, there is deliverance from alcohol. I mean, you've got to go through a, a withdrawal process, and there's so many helpful means today, modern means, to help people get off, like cigarettes. There are a lot of helpful means of getting people off cigarettes as, as alcohol. So you can be helped in that regard, but uh, it definitely is a sin that leads to a, a, a sickness. It's like, uh, take sclerosis on the liver. I mean, that's not a, 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 a sin in the sense that, you know, but it's a disease that now affects the whole body, and what, that's a result of alcoholism. So it is both a sin and a disease, but the sin leads to the disease, and then the disease takes over, and that's why you need some medical help. It's not just, sometimes, Nathan, it's not, there's some people who get saved, who are alcoholics, and never had a desire for another taste. The other people who get saved that have to go through a process, because everybody is different, et cetera, et cetera, and God deals with people differently. But um, it is both. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens, and the voice that you hear teaching and answering the questions is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. If you are residing in Antigua and you don't have a church that you are regularly attending, let me clarify that. If you don't have a Bible teaching church that you are regularly attending, we would love to invite you to visit us at Grace Baptist Church on uh, Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Sunday school starts at 9. The morning Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. And then our midweek service is on Thursday nights at 6.30 p.m., and we rotate between prayer and Bible study on every other Thursday night. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.49. If you have a question, maybe something that has been said this evening has triggered a question in your mind, go ahead and ask it. Send it in via WhatsApp or text message, 1-268-782-782. 1454 is the WhatsApp or text number. Or you can call and ask your question live on the air, 268-462-7420. We'll put you live on the air. Or you can just go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and comment your question there. I'm going to go ahead and thank you in advance for your question or your questions and comments. And as they come in, I'll pass them along to Pastor Murphy. Another question that has come in, Pastor, what do you think about this prophet that just came to Antigua from St. Vincent? He's with an organization, I think it's called Life by Faith. What do you think? Is he a real prophet? Well, I would say um, unequivocally that there are no prophets today. So I don't consider him to be a true prophet, and uh, it is to my mind, and um, this is probably the Baptistic position, the Word of God is complete, Genesis to Revelations. Uh, God has said all that he needs to say to us through his Word. And the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that it's the apostles and the prophets that laid the foundation of the church. In other words, the foundation has already been laid. The this, this superstructure was built by the pastors and the evangelists. There's no need now for, for apostles or prophets. So as far as I'm concerned, um, there are no 
apostles today and there are no prophets today. So this person, whoever is claiming to be a prophet, um, in my judgment, is a false prophet. The other thing I've learned uh, about him, because I, I, when the question was asked, I had to do some uh, call a few people to find out, because I hadn't heard about this prophet. I heard about him on Sunday morning when our uh, youth uh, pastor was doing some teaching on another subject, and um, his name, this prophet, was brought up. But I also was sent two newspaper articles uh, that he was uh, charged with slander during an exorcism, and he had to pay a lady $10,000 in the Grenadines Island, one of the Grenadines Islands, because of the whatever took place in the exorcism was done online, and he posted the video online. And um, for what I understand, the lady who was supposed to have had this demon in her when asked um, who um, sent the demon, because that's one of the questions the exorcist asked. She was told that another lady, and the lady heard her name, and she was able to bring it to court, and um, the judge heard the whole case and discovered it was slander. Um, and so he had to pay it. And then there's also another charge of um, assault and abuse. Uh, that is pending in the court uh, with the same person who's proclaimed to be a prophet. So all the reports I've heard, I've heard that he came here to Antigua. Um, a lady brought him, and um, I understand he was pretty much told not to tell the other pastors whatever it is. He had something at the the uh, the hall there, multi-purpose, multi-purpose hall. He read something in there and was supposed to be doing some kind of deliverance and stuff like that. Um, but from all the the, I think the pastors here are going to send some pastors group are going to send some article about him um, to let them know what their position was vis-a-vis him. But it doesn't seem as though that the pastors here proved his coming to uh, to St. Vincent, uh, to Antigua and um, doing the kind of work that he's doing. I, I would just say, Nathan, people are just um, um, drawn towards something that is spectacular and unusual. They want to see miracles. And our Lord said it's an evil generation that seeks miracles. So people are looking for something with pyrotechnics, they're looking for something unusual, and that's why they're captivated by people who came with claim they got the prophetic gift and they can do all kinds of exorcism. But I remind you that John the Baptist did no miracles. Yet Jesus said, of all people born, there was none born greater than John. And I remember that Christ did all of these miracles. At the end of all the miracles he did, uh, at the end, he ended with 12 disciples, and we discover 120 in the, in the book of Acts chapter 1. So um, miracles is, is not what is, in my judgment, really needed today. What is needed is a godly, consistent life that exhibits Christ-like character. I think when people see transformed people living that kind of life, to my mind, that has a greater impact than seeing something spectacular. Then you go home, and it's gone. But to see live before you a uh, Christians who are living out their faith in a biblical way. I think that's needed above everything else to, to, to reassure people that God is still among His people and there are still people who are pursuing righteousness and holiness and to create and crave within people the desire to walk away from a lifestyle of sin to embrace a lifestyle of holiness. I think above everything that's what's needed as opposed to these these uh, this this um these miracles and exorcisms and so on and so forth. I just think that they're 
just distractions, to be very honest with you. Question from a listener. Pastor Murphy, you were talking about alcoholism and social drinking. Don't you think it's a little outdated to say you shouldn't social drink? No, I don't think it's outdated. I think it's I think it's an embarrassment that Christians have gone on that line, to be very honest with you. I think they've lost their testimony. Uh, we're supposed to be a distinct people, separate and distinct. That's what holiness is all about. Uh, our goal is not to mesh and to um, integrate ourselves with society as such so that we lose our distinction. We should always have a mark of demarcation that makes us completely different. And in our socializing, I've been to, I've been manager already, been to business meetings and all kinds of stuff with highfalutin directors and so on, and alcoholic beverage serve all the I'm a teetotaler. I don't, I don't need that. Right, and that causes them to ask questions. But why, 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 why are you like that? Then you give them the Christian faith. That's <laughs> it's the difference that causes people to be curious. Well, how come that everybody else is doing this and you're not doing it? So we lose our testimony, we lose our opportunity to witness because we become amalgamated and and meshing and blended in such a way that we want to be considered to be relevant. I'm not concerned about relevance. I'm concerned about holiness and righteousness. That's what the Bible is concerned about. And uh, when we are different, it's what's going to attract people to us, not when we become like them and act like them and behave like them and, and do the same things that they're doing. They see us on the same plane as they are, and they have no interest in our Christianity. So I don't think I'm out of touch. I think believers are out of touch with God. Uh, I might be able to touch with what's going on in society, but that's not my concern. My concern is being in contact with God and contact with Scripture. Uh, that's my main concern. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from Antigua, 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. We are glad that you have chosen to participate in tonight's episode. The reason I say participate is because that's what this program is designed around. It's designed around, and we thrive off of your interaction. You can call and ask your question by calling 268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text a question to 268-782-1454. Yeah, Nathan, I, I, I look, the problem today is that Christians dress like the unsaved people, talk like the unsaved people, live like the unsaved people, have the same values as the unsaved people, there's no difference, basically. That is the fallacy of our times. But that's because Christians want to reach the unsaved. Yeah, but you don't, again, what attracts is not what you like. Difference is what attracts. And I remember that, remind ourselves that we are to be holy as God is holy. What distinguishes God is that he's separate completely separate. And that's what the word holiness means, that we must be separate and distinct. One only has to look in the situation in the Old Testament with Israel, when God called them to be holy. Everything that about Israel was different. Everything. Quit. And the reason for that was it creates such a clash that the others would then want to be drawn like a magnet to Israel. That's not happening in the church today. <laughs> so I am saying, uh, basically saying we need to get back to uh, a life of holiness and righteousness and that doesn't mean a life that doesn't have any joy or any, any uh, that you don't socialize. That doesn't mean that at all. It just means that you're, you're, you're so distinctive that you, you're noticed and it provokes questions. You know, it's like almost like in the Old Testament that they had all of these uh, memorials. They had stones. When they took out, came across the Jordan River, they took 12 stones and laid them on the side. Of course, people want to know in, in, the, in the future, what about these stones? And it became an opportunity to explain 
how God brought deliverance uh, to Israel. So all of these memorials were designed for that purpose. The Passover, why do we do this, Daddy? Again, you get an opportunity to share the gospel. The unleavened bread, why do we do this, Daddy? We do that. It's like the communion, why we do communion, why we do baptism. It creates an opportunity for people uh, to ask questions, and then we share the glad tidings with them. But the distinctiveness of Christianity is gone, and the, the merging of Christianity with the world has been to the detriment of the church and the cause of Christ. A text message that has just come in. Pastor, what are your thoughts on an adulterous pastor? An adulterous pastor needs to be defrocked, permanently defrocked. He should not be part of any church. Um, you one, mean as far as a pastor? Yeah, as a pastor. Yeah, yeah he should be. He should no longer serve in a, in a pastoral position. Uh, that that is. There's a verse in the scripture that I, I connect two of them, Nathan. The book of um, Proverbs says that the reproach of the adulterer shall never be taken away, and the Bible says the man of God should be a passage beyond reproach. So when you take those two verses together, it's very, very clear that adultery disqualifies a person from being a pastor. So um, as far as I'm concerned, once that happens, that man should be, he could do something else, but his position is no longer in the pastorate. Remember Paul said, I keep my body under, lest I be a castaway. And what Paul is meaning that he does something and doesn't control his body so that he has to be placed on a shelf. He's not cast away in the sense he's cast into hell. He's just set aside uh, so that he's no longer usable in the capacity he had before. Nathan, I think if uh, churches would do that, there are a lot of churches that wouldn't have pastors today. And I think it is emboldened and um, others to go down that line of adultery because there are no real consequences. And as you know, there are people that can go from, in, in the States, for example, there's such a big place. A man can commit adultery in this church and go to the end of the America and pass another church. Nobody inquiries, well, tell us where you come from. We can follow. Nobody follows up a lot of times. You just take his credentials. And so you have serial adultery going on among pastors. And that's a disgrace to the church of God. We need to, somehow we need to clean up our act. And uh, we need to take the ministry very seriously. And churches need to understand that they're the ones that have the power to call a pastor or defrock a pastor. Uh, and um, I would suggest that that's what needs to be done. A question that has come in. Good evening. I'm almost four years into being a believer. It's often difficult because even though I know I'm not alone, Christ isn't physically here, and sometimes I'm angry and sad about that. I am social and do love to be around people, but my desire to have God physically next to me beats me down and tears me, and sometimes I end up making bad decisions relationally. I know he gives us what we can manage, but how do I overcome this feeling of God expecting more than I can manage? I feel like I'm failing. Am I sinning against him? Thank you for this program. Well, I would give you one verse of Scripture that will tell you that God is not expecting more than you can manage. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31, uh, where it says, They have no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation uh, make a way of escape. So he's not going to give you more than you can handle. 
He's not expecting more than you can handle. As a matter of fact, he tailor makes the testings in your life uh, to your capacity to respond and your ability uh, to handle the situation. If it seems to you that it is more than you can handle, the Bible says in that case, he makes a way of escape for you. So he's not going to give you more than he thinks you're able to handle. But in a time of weakness, you might think it's more than you can handle, and then he opens a door of escape. So either way, uh, it is very, very clear that it's within your capacity uh, to to do what God requires of you. And um, God is giving you that promise. He's faithful and just, and he will keep his word, never give you more than you can take. But if at any point you feel that way, there's a way of escape. So it's time you need to look for that door of escape. Now, in terms of the, um, you've made mistakes with relationships. Uh, it seems to me that um, physicality seems to be one of your main main um, means of, of socializing. Uh, you want God physically by you. You're not going to get God physically by you. Uh, the Bible is very, very clear uh, about that. Uh, we Christ was on, on earth. And now he's in heaven, and he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell the believer, and he ministers through the Holy Spirit. But he's not going to physically come next to you. All of these claims, sometimes I hear people talk, they saw Jesus. There's not a single person that saw Jesus that could just uh, remain um, in, in their position. You'd be so overawed with his presence that it's almost sending you down to your face, like John in the, in the book of Revelation, overwhelmed by his presence. But so I think you're 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 thinking in physical terms, and I think that may be part of your problem. That um, that's not going to happen. You're not going to have God's physical presence with you. There may be exceptions, like in the case of Paul, where Paul said, in, uh, "When all men forsook me, the Lord stood by me." You might have that real sense of His presence, uh, but it's not going to be a physical presence. And I'm not too sure what you mean by um, you know going into wrong relationships. Um, I I would think that if you're going to talk about relationships, you should be guided by Bible principles. Uh, for example, if you're a believer, you should never go into a relationship with a non-unsaved person. That's clear. So if you have overstepped your Christian bonds and found yourself linked up with some unsaved person, it would not be surprising that you've gotten some fall or engaged in some activity that now you're, you're ashamed of. But it's not only just um, a relationship with an unsaved person. Uh, there are Christians at different levels of maturity. And you must be very, very careful that even some Christians, it would not be the appropriate thing for you to enter a relationship because they're not mature enough. Uh, and you may not be mature enough as well. So there are other things. And then, of course, other biblical principles, you have to maintain purity. That's a biblical principle if you're going to go into a dating situation, socializing. Uh, sex belongs only to marriage. So that has to be very, very clear as a Bible principle. Uh, and, you know, that's a principle. The Lord is not going to come down and and um, tie your hands or tie your legs so that you can't engage in that kind of activity. He expects you to take that Bible principle and on the basis of the power of the Holy Spirit, live out that, that, that Bible principle. So I am not too sure um, what is causing you to have these failed relationships. But I would suggest to you to get some clear principles in the Bible that has to do with uh, getting along with believers and uh, maintaining uh, standards. 
and let that guide you in establishing those will. And the other thing, you might need counsel. Um, you might need to go to your pastor, and um, uh, you also might need to do some investigation about the persons that you're engaged in. Anybody knows them? Uh, what's the what's what's um, what's the feeling about that person in, in terms of character and in terms of spirituality, in terms of maturity? So you you need to do some investigation before you get into these quick relationships that you flounder in and uh, find yourself making big mistakes. But until you give me something more specific, it's very difficult to, to suggest to you um, how to avoid the mistakes you've made before without understanding what happened in, in, in the past. So, and, we, and we can't discuss it, I don't think, on the, on the radio. Is unequally yoked, does that just relate to dating or does that also relate to going into like a business partnership and so on and so forth? It's a very broad principle uh, and there's no clear connection in the Bible that it only relates to dating, it only relates to, to business, but it makes common sense that if you are a Christian and you are going to go into a business uh, enterprise with an unsafe person, you are going to have problems. There's no question about that. You're going to have problems uh, because your value system is so different than the person who you're going to involve in. As a Christian, it's not just about making money. It's not just make, making a profit. It's about maintaining a testimony and being a person of integrity. And there's certain things that an unsafe person would want you to do, even in the interest of increasing your profit uh, margins that you cannot engage in, and that leads to some problems. Um, so uh, it's not just business, it's not just marriage, it's not just relationships. I think that's a, a, a principle that is ac across the board when it comes to believers and unbelievers. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, and we look forward to your interaction. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268 462 7420. I realize I may have said that quickly, so let me slow it down so you can enter it in your phone and save it as a contact. The number to call to ask your question live on the air is 268-462-7420. It is a safe place for you to ask your question. We are not here to mock and ridicule or make you look bad on there. We're here to hear your question, your concern, and then Pastor will answer it using biblical principles and scripture. You can WhatsApp or text your question. I know not everyone wants to speak live on the air, and that is not a problem. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268 782 one four five four. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is eight ten. If you haven't already encouraged someone to tune in to this episode of That's Truth, we still have about fifty minutes left in this episode. Go ahead and contact someone using whatever means of technology you want or a phone call and encourage them to tune in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and listen to That's Truth. And not just listen, but to ask their question. Yeah, Nathan, just a thought hit me when I was just uh, thinking about the matter of the alcohol that was raised earlier. Do you know that the, uh, the most destructive drug is alcohol? Not marijuana. Not marijuana, not crack cocaine. 
the most destructive drug that destroys more lives than cigarettes, than marijuana, than cocaine, crack cocaine, is alcohol. I can give you the stats on that. I, I did a course recently that talked about that problem. I didn't know the problem was so grave, to be honest with you. Now, here's it. Imagine I smoke in marijuana in, in small degrees, uh, and I take the liberty because, you know, same thing with alcohol. Imagine the most destructive drug I'm taking in small degrees, uh, so what do I say to the guy who says that he only sm- smokes marijuana in small degrees as a Christian? You see, the inconsistency of it is, is really inconsistent. Uh, but I don't think Christians, to my mind, I don't think that Christians think long-term any longer in terms of effects and repercussions. I just think that they act on impulse, and I think they're more governed by the spirit of the age and the times than they are by biblical principles. That's why they engage in activity that sometimes that s- uh, confuses me. How can a believer engage? But I think a lot of it has to do that they're more in tune with the spirit of the times than they are with the principles of Scripture. So if alcohol is so destructive, why is it so prevalent? Why is it allowed? Why is it even encouraged? Well, it's it's just like cigarettes. I think everybody knows uh, that cigarettes is, is bad for you. Even on the cigarette label now, they tell you that it doesn't matter. Once you get hooked on this thing, it's, it's like you become addicted. It's like you get addicted to, to, to sex. You get addicted to alcohol. You get addicted. It's, it's an addiction. It, it's, just a, it's a mind transforming. I know that they talk about neuroscience. I know talking about um, um, uh, neuroplasticity the, uh, the brain and stuff like that that you know the brain is just like connected wires and uh, when you get involved with an addiction it it, it it channels the wires in a certain direction and it, it's going to take uh, it take a while to rebuild what it was before but it can be done but it takes about six weeks to rebuild it so when you engage in any kind of addiction it bypasses what is called the frontal lobe, which is the executive function. It goes to the limbic system. So rather than coming to the where you rationalize and then think, it goes directly to your pleasure zone. Uh, but that is built over time, so it bypasses your reasoning. You're no longer reasoning about this thing at all. It's just it's just about the pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. But then that can change. You know, discover that because of the electrical linkage. Uh, you can you can actually repattern it again. It's fascinating when I uh, reading about this new idea of um, neuroplasticity. The brain can heal itself, and that shows you that that God is so wise that you can get into a habit that sets a pattern, but you don't have to stay there for life. No, they didn't know that before. They just figured that. You, but they now realize that the brain can reconnect the, the levels that it's supposed to before, but it gets worn out. It's like an electrical circuit gone berserk. But you can recite, you can re, uh, rewire it in such a way that it goes back to normal so you can solve the problem. So there's a lot of hope in science today in terms that supports the biblical idea of transforming the mind, how, how you can actually change the thinking pattern. A lot of this new science now is, is, is actually confirming that biblical teaching about uh, renewing the mind. Now, I don't want to sound like a Christian that's living under a rock, but why doesn't a government just ban alcohol if it's so destructive to society? Because of so many vested interests. Think about, let's imagine that you close down all the alcohol in the Caribbean. Okay. That means that the sugar industry is affected because you produce alcohol from the sugar industry. Uh, think of um, Mount Gay. Think of all these different things that are made in the Caribbean. So, I mean, all these jobs are lost in the whole process. So, I think it's an economic cost involved in it. But uh, again, 
I can't see people making a choice in terms of the health of the nation vis-a-vis the economics of the nation. Uh, economics always override the human factor, whether that be when they had slavery, human life meant nothing, it was just a, it was actually an economic system. Every, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So you can almost, almost uh, pinpoint that any evil that you're seeing, whether it be the marijuana industry, which is, I can't imagine any government legalizing marijuana. It's a mind-altering drug. And any person that's using marijuana before age, like age 24 is when your brain is completely formed. So when a person starts using from 12 to 18 within that period, that's when the vulnerable age, and those are the people that are in the future, the brain are going to be cooked. Now, it's not that the science is not there warning governments about this. It's like what's happening in California and different parts of the America where they've legalized it. The amount of problems they're having now in terms of health problems is astronomical. Jamaica, I remember reading an article some time ago of having ganja babies and so on and so forth. We don't learn... And again, politics is involved in it. If you want to get the rest of vote, it's like what you call identity politics in America, how it works. We want to win the gay people. So we create laws that would endorse their lifestyle. We want to lead the transgender people. So we create laws that would favor the transgender. We want to win the lesbians. We create lesbians. We want to win the blacks. So we create laws. We want to win the Hispanics. We do that. That's what identity policy is. Finding out the different sectors of society and giving those sectors whatever they want from a political perspective to get the vote. It's all about power and money. That's what it's about. You, the question was asked by a listener and was referenced in your response about God won't give me more than I can handle and that he'll give me a way of escape. Is divorce ever that way of escape? Well, again, there are biblical wrongs for divorce. So in the case of adultery, for sure. Um, I I try to heal marriages, Nathan, and the, the, the biggest problem in counseling in marriage, to be honest with you, is sexual infidelity. And the problem there, by the way, the majority of cases is the male. And wives find it very difficult to forgive infidelity, right? Uh, so you've got to, it's a tough, it's a tough, tough, and sometimes you listen to the stories and your heart breaks because you reverse the cycle and put yourself in that position. Every time a man goes out of a marriage and have a one-night stand or is involved in any kind of adultery with anybody, any woman that sleeps with a married man has slept with somebody else before. And every man she's ever slept with, when he sleeps with her, everything those people had that gave her, he takes home to his wife. So when you're counseling now, you just can't be concerned about just saving the marriage for the marriage's sake. You're jeopardizing the life of your wife. That means you're jeopardizing the welfare of your children. So sometimes you have to weigh these kind of things. And some people, men who are out there fooling around, expect they can come into the, the, and you know, the wife knows and they still want to sleep with her. They don't understand you've got to take a, 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 a six month, go and get tested, right? Because if you have one of these 24 STDs, uh, there must be a period of time that you can get some kind of treatment because if not, whatever you have, <laughs> you give your wife. We are in such a mess today that I'm very sympathetic when to, to women when they explain the adultery that's going on. With, and it's a very 
huge problem. Uh, so I think there are cases where a repeat offender who keeps doing the same thing again and again and again and again, a woman to live in that condition is put in her life constantly. If she decides that she can't handle it anymore, she has biblical grounds to divorce because of adultery, to be very honest. So it could very well be that in some cases, adultery is the option uh, for her because she's following the biblical divorce. Principle. Divorce, divorce yeah. not adultery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. Divorce, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 819. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air, 268 462 The phone line's open and it's waiting for your call. You can WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. You can also join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. You can watch behind the scenes in the studio, listen to the program, and in the comment section, comment your question. Thank you in advance for your interaction. A question that has come in, Pastor, my question is in relation to John chapter 20 and verse 17. Let me read that verse and then I'll read the question. John 20 and verse 17 says, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. John twenty seventeen, if Jesus had not yet ascended to the Father, how could he have committed his spirit to the Father as Luke twenty three forty six says he did? Can you read that? Yeah, Luke twenty three forty six. Scroll down to the right verse here. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Well, the simple answer to that is, is that man is a tripartite being. Um, some people believe is a, uh, a dichotomy as opposed to a trichotomy. And what that really means is that there's a body, soul, and spirit. There's some people who believe that the soul and, and, and the spirit is the immaterial part and the body is the, is the um, physical part. But in the case of our Lord, clearly, when he died on the cross... He dismissed his spirit and sent his spirit to be with the Father. Uh, he said, Father, receive my spirit. Uh, he did not um, ascend until 40 days later in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, 9, and 10. Uh, if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Acts chapter 1 and verse, verse number 3, three uh-huh. says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then read verse 9 and 10. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. So what you have there then is his spirit was dismissed to the Father, but his body had not been resurrected at the time. And uh, we have his body ascending in Acts chapter uh, 1, etc., etc. So there's no, there's no real problem for us who understand that the, there's a, 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 a body and a spirit. If you just, um, like some religions believe that the spirit and the body uh, is just one, 
and that when this when this, um, the body dies the spirit dies we don't believe that we believe the spirit goes to be with the Lord but in our Lord's case the resurrection not taking place as yet and he was resurrected on the third day and then he met with the disciples and gave them many infallible proofs about who he is and then 40 days later he ascends and goes up to the Father so his body goes up uh, to be the Father in Acts chapter 1 after 40 days uh, by the way, it's the same thing happens to the believer. Absent from the body is what? Present, present with the Lord. Lord. So our spirit goes to the Lord when we die. The body goes to the grave. And when he comes back, he comes with us. The spirit and the body is joined together at the rapture, and then we go to be with the Lord. Uh, that's what Paul explains in Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Thank you to the individual who, or thank you to everybody who has sent in questions this evening. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to the following phone number. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Another question, why did Jesus instruct his disciples not to tell anyone that he was Christ in Matthew sixteen twenty? Does this contradict his great commission in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen? Well, if you read um, those two verses, uh, Matthew sixteen twenty. <clears throat> Matthew sixteen twenty says, "Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ." Right, and then if you look at Matthew twenty-eight nineteen now. A verse we are probably all familiar with. Yeah. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So the question is, do these two verses contradict each other? Number one, don't tell. And then number two, go into all the world and preach the gospel. By the way, you'll find that there are many times in Scripture where our Lord, after performing a healing, would give clear instructions to those people who were the beneficiaries of that healing process not to advertise or promote and tell people what he did or who it was that did it. For example, I'm just going to give you some verses, Matthew 8, 4, is like that. Would you like to just read that one for me, please? And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Okay, he told him man not to do that because he was healed of a leprosy. And uh, you, if you read the verses afterwards, the man went and straightway told everybody about it. And then, of course, what happened as a result of that? Everybody crowding in on Christ, his ministry is being interfered with, etc., etc. Uh, there's also, um, um, you don't have to look at these references, Matthew 17, 9, Mark seven thirty six, Mark eight thirty. Mark 9.9, 9, Luke 5.14, uh, Luke 8.56, Luke 9.20. In all of those cases, our Lord told the people who heal them, don't tell anybody. Uh, but so, so what's the significance of that? Is this a contradiction? Not, not necessarily a contradiction. The first thing I'd like to say is that there are passages in which when he told them not to tell, uh, this was a temporary restriction. Uh, he gave them a time, don't tell until, for example, look at Matthew seventeen verse nine. Matthew seventeen nine says, "And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead.'" Again, notice that they'd gone through the transfiguration. Uh, they'd seen Peter talks about this in the work first Peter he saw the glory of the Lord in that but notice he's saying don't tell anybody about this until what 
until he's risen. So there's a temporary um, restriction place on manifesting who he really is until uh, he's risen from the dead. Look also at Mark 9.9. Mark 9.9 says, And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. This is such an important principle that both Mark, which is Synoptic's Gospel, make the same principle known, uh, etc., that there's times when the Lord doesn't want to be manifested and again until after his, 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 his uh, resurrection. So a question that came to my mind is, mm-hmm. how did the disciples, this is before the crucifixion, mm-hmm. how did the disciples not remember when they see Jesus put in the grave, say, hey, you remember he said he was going to raise from the dead. Yeah, but if you if you also uh, go through the, all of the Gospels, there are dozens of times that he told them, I am going to be crucified and I'm going to rise from the dead. It never registered. And here's a simple reason. The Jews were not looking for a Messiah to die. They're looking for a Messiah to reign, to destroy the Romans. Because remember the Old Testament presents two pictures of the Messiah. He comes as a lamb to die in in uh, um, Isaiah 53, and he comes as a king to reign in the prophetic writings. They're looking at the Messiah coming to reign, so they don't have any in their mind. This, this is just not registering. No, you are going. You remember uh, the, while he's talking about that, they're even wondering who would be the greatest. I mean, think about that—the audacity of I am talking about the crucifixion and you guys talking about who's going to rule greatest but that gives you an idea but this comes to the same thing Nathan that, that um, the hysteria of having people crowding in on him and uh, overwhelming him he has a ministry to perform and part of the reason why he tells them don't make me so popular basically by telling all of these type of things He's concerned about the masses of the crowd interfering with his ministry, and he has three years to get what he's got done. And with everybody wanting every like somebody, everybody want a favor now. Everybody want a healing now. So how does he do his ministry and fulfill all that he has to do? So it's to limit the crowd response that would uh, lead them to so overwhelm him that he can't. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, Luke chapter five. And verse 14. And he charged him to tell no man, but go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according to Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Now read verse 15. But so much the more went there a a fame around him, and the great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Read verse 16. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. So overwhelmed. Just too much, right? So what he has to do, he has to now isolate himself. Uh, imagine that if every day he has to do the same thing. This, you know, His purpose is he has three and a half years to get the job done. And um, he's concerned about uh, being so popular and so famous for the miracle worker. Imagine a person coming to Antigua who can raise the dead. A man born blind can see, a lame can walk, lepers can be cleansed. Imagine what the whole of Antigua probably would flock to him every day because they want some favor. My granny dead, my, 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 my dad just died, my son just died. Can you heal him? He can't get the job done that he was supposed to do. And that is part of the reason he said limited, uh, wanted his limited exposure because it would interfere um, 
with his ministry. And the third thing, Nathan, as I pointed out to you, is that the one point is that um, the Jews' concept of a messianic Messiah was a political deliverer. Remember one time they even wanted to force him to become king? If you remember in John chapter 6, after he had fed the multitude, uh, they pursued him to make him king. And he said, you want to make me king because, not because, but because you were fed. In other words, he's now Santa Claus, so we make Santa Claus king. But he, the Bible says he withdrew, stayed away from it. Uh, but in their vision, uh, they want this uh, political Messiah. He's not the political Messiah. He's come to die. So again, he doesn't want this idea that is so popular that he is the deliverer. And imagine now that he's come to die for the sins of the world, but Rome gets it, the message wrong, that he's come to take over Caesar's position. Imagine how that jeopardizes now his ministry. So that's a third factor that's uh, involved in that matter. And then number four, I think it has to do with timing. Uh, this was not the time for him to uh, be broadcast. It's like what he told his mom, my time has not yet come. You want me to perform these miracles? Well, the wedding is going on. They don't have any wine. Do something. He said, woman, my hour has not yet. The, the hour of displaying his glory has not yet come. So he had to restrain himself. But it was not God's timing. His timing for the message to be carried about who he is was after he had gone to the death and the resurrection. It is then that that gospel must be preached to the end of the world. But until that happened, there must be a damper placed on his popularity, lest the message be misconstrued and he be overcrowded so that he cannot fulfill the ministry that God has sent for him. We have a couple questions that have come in. If you have a question, go ahead and send it in, and we will get to it before the end of this program. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454, or you can call and ask your question on the air, 268-462-7420. A text message. My 44-year-old son takes me to be his enemy because I asked him to leave my home. Should I feel guilty? I am 70 years old. Well, it depends on what you ask him to leave your home for. Uh, he is 44 years old. He's a man. Uh, he shouldn't uh, feel that um, he's entitled to live indefinitely in your home. That's your home. He's an independent man. He's not a child any longer. And again, I don't know what would have provoked you to ask him to leave. But I, sus I would suspect that he must have been doing something that you have uh, spoken to him endless times about. And... Um, so I, I, I don't think you should have any guilt uh, if you have done all you can for your son, if you have set down rules and regulations of your home, what you expect of him, if he constantly violate those rules and you've warned him that he cannot continue indefinitely uh, doing that. I don't see why you should have any, any compunction of conscience. He's a man. I mean, he's, he's not a 40-year-old baby. He's a man. So if you feel it's time for him to be on his own, um, that's your choice, uh, and I don't feel you should have any. And you're 77. Uh, you don't 70. Have, 70. You, sh you, you shouldn't have to carry that burden. Uh, if he's a burden to you in that regard, I don't know if he's working. I don't know if he's on drugs. I don't know what he's doing. I don't, you know. But um, 
all I'm saying to you is that the, the, the young man is a man, and if you feel that it's a time for him to leave, and you've laid down whatever conditions, he's broken those conditions, I don't think you should um, lose any sleep over it, sir. The next question, dear Pastor Murphy, if a wife gets divorced because of adultery of her husband, does she have the right to marry again, or does she have to remain single? No, any time you find divorce in the Bible, which was allowed under the Old Testament as well, the guiltless party has a right to remarry. And I would probably do a, 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 a program on, on that because I know there's some people uh, who use certain passages in the in the uh, the Gospels to see to indicate that this person would uh, be committing adultery. But properly understood in the context, that's not the case. You can't give a person a biblical ground for divorce and then uh, make the innocent person suffer like the person who's guilty. That's not even just. That's not even... Um, equity as far as, as, as that is concerned. But any time a person has a legitimate right to divorce, they also have a legitimate right to remarry if they so choose. Um, I can do a program on that, to be honest with you, to try to clarify people's thinking along that line because I know there's some teaching in the Gospels that can be interpreted that way, but if properly understood, um, it takes on a different complexion altogether and helps with the interpretation. If you, if something the pastor has said, or I know for a while there he was listing a lot of references much faster than you could look them up or write them down, there is a resource available to you free of charge. You can go to our website and scroll down to, the, let me give you our website, radiolighthouse.org, www.radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo that you see. It's a broadcast microphone, just like the one that I'm talking to you through. And when you see that, there's a circle in the middle of the screen that says podcast. Click on that circle. And then there's a list of several podcasts that we produce. And I believe it's the top one on that list is That's Truth. The most recent episode will be uploaded to that link every Thursday Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday of each week after we have a live episode. But you can click on the archive and you can go to all previous. Let me see. We Tonight's episode is 272. So you can go to all previous 271 episodes. And as Pastor was referencing possibly doing a program on marriage and divorce, I want to say that there was a program in the past that touched on that topic. And I'm trying to find it here in my list there we go. Episode number 220 and 221. Uh, they are named Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, and then Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage Part 2. Obviously, there may be more information the pastor would like to share at some point in the future, but that will be a good starting point for you if you would like more information. And let me give you the date, because it might be easier for you to find it in the list uh, I believe they're listed in chronological order. That aired in September 20th and September 27th of 2022. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.38. We have 20 minutes left in this episode of That's Truth, and that is still plenty of time for you to ask your question. You can call. The phone line is open, available, and awaiting your call. To ask your question live on the air, call 268-462-7420. 
doesn't have to relate to anything that's been discussed tonight. It can be a completely unrelated topic, but Pastor will hear your question and answer it from a biblical worldview. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454, or you can join us on Facebook, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live link, video link, and then you can comment your question in the comment section, and it will get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. A question for you, Pastor. Pastor, I have five brief questions about parents and their children. These look like some very practical information. So if you are just getting ready to step into the other room or to step out of your vehicle, if you can stay tuned for the next few minutes, this will be beneficial, especially if you have children in your home. Question number one, what do you think of the expression, children should be seen but not heard? I think this is a very um, ridiculous question, to be honest with you, and it demonstrates a profound ignorance of children's needs and uh, children themselves. Uh, children need parental interaction and because they're full of questions and queries. And uh, it's unthinkable that any caring, loving, knowledgeable adult uh, could raise vulnerable little children uh, with this maxim that they should be uh, seen and not heard. Uh, what should be taught the child is how to um, appropriately get mommy's attention or interrupt uh, mommy. Uh, excuse me, please, may I ask a question? Um, Mom and dad, I need help, uh, whatever it is. But to say that, you know, uh, I've known of one friend of mine um, who his marriage pretty much got destroyed that way. That he, quite frankly, the way he handled the children, the, the wife could not believe it. That he, he felt this way, that the children should be seen and not heard. And um, she came from a different philosophy that children had to be heard because at that age they have so many questions. And it created repeated conflict in the marriage. I don't think they ever divorced, but they eventually separated uh, because, again, it's madness. And uh, clearly a person who holds this opinion is very ignorant about the welfare of children, the needs of children. And I think it's a one of those expressions and maxims that I think that um, not worth um, maintaining or even promoting, quite frankly. I think it ought to be out of the vocabulary of, Christian, of uh, um, parents to entertain this idea. One thing I would say is this. Uh, when children are small... Uh, it's, it demands so much of you. It, it, it tries your energy, quite frankly. And I think one of the biggest problems today is mom and dad on the cell phone. Uh, it is a horrible problem, right? I, I think that uh, one of the things that they need to do is to organize um, when they come home. Um, both can be on the cell phone at the same time. That doesn't make any sense to the children are, are, are there. I think they should decide that we don't use the cell phone until the children go to sleep. But so much time is wasted on the, the, the cell phone. It's like people are plugged in all the time and they just don't have the time for kids, etc., etc. Uh, I grieve when I see that, to be very honest with you. And I think that's a big, big mistake. Um, uh, the most, And I keep telling people, you know, I, I, I got some grandchildren, and I keep telling their parents, these children are going to grow up so fast 
that you're going to regret that you didn't uh, give them the time that you should have because it's just, it's just today they're one and next day they're 18. Like you wonder where the years have gone to, right? And as a grandfather, he'll tell you this, I'm learning more about kids now than I ever learned about my own kids because I never really had the time to really see the developmental stages, what they can do at certain age and stuff like that. And it's made me do more research into the development of childhood than I've ever done in my life. And it's an eye-opener of the tremendous failure that I am seeing demonstrated uh, in people bringing up their kids. But um, now kids are, they ought to be able to ask questions. The parents should be there to answer those questions and devote attention to the kids. And then after the children have gone to sleep, well, get on your cell phone and do what you need to do. But right then the kids need the attention. Is the grandfather on you softer than the father was? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that always, <laughs> grandfather's always, the, the thing about it, Nathan, is that as you get older, you realize that your time went so fast, and you didn't have a time to enjoy a lot of simple things in life. So for me right now, you know, I, I, you know, I love my study. I have tons of books. I love to be, but quite frankly, with the grandchildren, I tell them, look, you come up here, you throw anything you want. You just play. Mess up the whole place if you want to because enjoy yourself. Now you're young. Be, be active. Be engaged. All kind of activities. Uh, if I didn't have that perspective and I, I was only concerned about how the library look and how the, the, the thing look, I could be much harsher. But what drives me that way is because I've seen how fast my life has gone. And uh, I've seen that there's so many things I missed out on. And I don't want the grandchildren to miss out. And I'm not going to spoil them in that way, but I just think that they should be given freedom to, to be children again. <laughs> I look at some of the work that some of these kids take home from school. Gosh, it is amazing what we're expecting of kids at a certain age. So everything is push, push. They, they don't have any childhood days anymore. And I think that's a massive mistake right, when it comes to kids. So I am more inclined to give them the freedom to express themselves. And, of course, the academics is important. But at this age, let them enjoy themselves and their freedom. Another question, one, another one of these five questions about parents and children. What can parents do to stimulate and improve a child's intelligence? Well, one of the most um, fascinating studies that was done on this, uh, it was called the Harvard uh, Preschool Project. And it was done by a Dr. Barton White and 15 researchers from 1965 to 1975, 10 years. They took 10 years just studying uh, small kids and how, what they can do um, to create greater intelligence and improve their learning capacity and how to become a healthy, intelligent uh, child. And they discovered five things, Nathan. I want to share these with you. Uh, it said it became very, very clear that the origin of human competence is founded on a critical period in a child's life between eight months and one and a half years old. She said this is very crucial. At no stage uh, in terms of the intellectual capacity uh, is, is it more important that between that stage, eight months and one and a half years. This is, these are the critical years that uh, a child... Um, the experience of a child during that period is, is very crucial to his uh, 
increasing his intellectual capacity. Number two, they said that the single most important environmental factor in the life of a child development and intellectual uh, development is the child's mother. She plays the major role in helping the child uh, to develop intellectually. Uh, she's the premier person, is that. And then the third thing they said is the amount of live language directed between the child and the and people. Now, they're not talking about television. They're not talking about the cell phone. They're not talking about the child overhearing conversations, but actually having live, live conversations between the child. They said that this helps to develop their linguistic ability, their intellectual ability, and their social skills. And it provides a rich in environment. And between 12 months and 15 months, it's very crucial to have this um, conversation, this live language conversation between the, the, the parents. That's very, 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 very crucial. Uh, and and, and I what, the reason why I mentioned the, the cell phone again, Nathan, is that a lot of parents, they have, they're so absorbed with the, uh, and this social uh, programs that they have on, on the internet, etc., that they just—it's like they're, they're oblivious to the child. Just want to talk and, and communicate and stuff like that. I think that is—I oh, see it, man, I, <laughs> and I keep banging it all the time because what the child needs is this talk. Just talk. Just talk. Just talk. And this does very. And then the the, um, the fourth thing is I said that. The child should have uh, free access to the living areas to, to, to just play. So when you have a home where the movement of a child is restricted because you know you can't you can't move the curtain, you can't move the chair, you you you, you uh, knock the vase off the the table. They said that's one of the greatest hindrances to develop a child. But if a child has the freedom, just the freedom, like the whole house basically to do, just explore. They said that that is one of the crucial crucial things. And then the other one is that they mentioned is that it is very, very clear that the nuclear family, where you've got a, a, a husband and a wife and children out of that union, not the blended family now where you bring in children from the wife, children from the, the husband and they get married, etc. Et but when it comes to strengthening, the, um, and helping, developing and improving, they said that there's nothing better than to have the nuclear family. That really helps. And the last thing is that... Um, that they said that the best parents were those who excelled in three areas. Those who can uh, were superb at designing and organizing the children's environment to play. You know, there's some parents who, uh, even in the when the child is in the cradle, they have different things that the child can turn to and touch and play and so on. They said that that is very, very significant. And then um, um, they're permitted to interrupt the parents um, so that the, the question that children should be heard, uh, seen and not heard, is, is completely contrary to what they've discovered. That when a child needs to ask a question or a child needs to know something, uh, they should be permitted to interrupt. And you know, don't interrupt mommy or don't interrupt daddy. You know, the child doesn't understand that. So the, the, giving them the capacity to interrupt, they said it's another important factor when it comes to the parents. And then... Um, Parents who are strong disciplinarians, but simultaneously um, have a great affection for children. So you must be, that those two things must be in balance. You can be too harsh, 
with your discipline and show little affection. But you can be a disciplinarian and yet you can show affection to say that that helps in the child development. So that when you, for example, uh, when you whip a child and the child cries, uh, it's a mistake not to, after you've done all the bawling, not to hug him, for example, and, and say that, you know, daddy loves you, blah, blah, blah. If you didn't do that, uh, you would not got a, 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 a whipping, whatever it is. But it's important to have discipline. If you don't have the discipline, you're not, it's going to affect your child's, uh, and you can see why, because if you don't have discipline when you're young, you're not going to have discipline when you go into the classroom, et cetera, et cetera, and also when it comes to, to learning and doing your schoolwork and so on. But at the same time, you need affection. Children love to be cuddled. Uh, touch is very, very crucial to their development. The, the, the warmth of the touch is, is crucial. So those are, are six things that they um, said that uh, are the most beneficial thing in early childhood education when it comes to small kids to help them to improve and develop the intellectual capacity. In relation to the statement that a child should be permitted to interrupt parents. Is there a time and place, though, that the child needs to be taught that when dad and pastor are having a conversation or when adults are having a conversation, you don't just butt in and say, but this, this, this? No, I'm, when I say interrupt, I mean you, you, you give them permission to interrupt, but how to do it. Okay. You get what I'm saying? I'm not okay. saying that you just come and just bang into the. But what I'm saying to you is that... <clears throat> A lot of parents have never taught the child, like when you're talking to somebody, well, if you're going to, if you need something, this is how you do it, right? So you might, you might come to say, mommy, um, please, c- can I have a word with you or not? And then the parent would say something. But the idea that don't ever interrupt me when I'm talking to that, that has to be avoided. But just teach them. When something is needed or they need attention or they need a question or something, this is the way you do it uh, and, and to help them. But the idea that don't ever interrupt me, you know, when you're speaking to adults, et cetera, that's a big mistake. Another question <clears throat> in relation to uh, parenting and children. Should a child be punished for bedwetting? Never. Never. Um, this is a involuntary thing that happens to a child when he's going to a deep sleep. And I don't see how you could punish a child for something that he doesn't have any control over, uh, quite frankly. So it, it should never be, be done. A child should never be whipped or, or punished because they've wet the bed. Um, there are several things that have been suggested. Um, I was reading Dr. Dobson on, on this matter, and um, he said two things. He said, number one, there's a something called a buzzer that is sold. Um, I think Sears sells it, not they still sell it, and something called a, a, a night train as well, that when a child does um, urinate at night, that that buzzer goes off and awakens the child. It becomes disruptive. Uh, and the other thing he suggests, that when that does happen, you take the child to the bathroom, and you do one or two things. You put them in cool water and bathe them off, and you splash cold water in their face. Uh, he says that that reaction, um, th- they don't like that, quite frankly, and it, it, in other, it's what you might call, he calls it um, negative reinforcement. That's what he's talking about. So you've got to try to um, somehow get that 
whatever is built into her system, something that she dislikes. But the, that's the way you do it. And he says it's going to take about four to eight weeks to, to do that. But he's never recommended, quite frankly, that you use the whip because it's not. It, it, Charlie is such a deep sleep. He doesn't even know he did it. So when he get up, the thing about the parents is that when he wet the bed now, they wet the sponge, they're angry. And they got to get up now, mommy, I wet myself and, and whatever it is. So they, maybe they've just fallen asleep. So they're, they're angry at what has happened and they don't understand. But the child did not do it deliberately. It is something that happened in the deep sleep that is something that is automatic that, that, that happens to a child. So um, the beating creates fear. In, in the child uh, and it actually would actually almost cause them to do more of it because they're so fearful uh, of what's going to happen so he's recommended that um, there's no whipping but he's recommended that you put them in a cool bath whatever but the important thing is to, the discomfort of cold water in the face is one of the best ways to deal with it he has said that has worked and he's been at this thing for quite a long time and I think it's counsel is ways when it comes to that but I've seen parents whip kids because the piano have been very, very angry. I've actually told them they need to read books <laughs> because a lot of parents are, have children don't have never read a book about, about these kind of things and they don't know how to respond with it. And probably they respond the same way their mommy responded, etc., etc. And by the way, if this goes on between age five and six, it becomes a major problem for the child now, socially and um, psychologically. So they're saying that you try to try to deal with this problem before you reach like age four. Uh, don't wait till it goes into age five and age six because it becomes a real problem for the child in terms of self-image and so on and so forth. I think we've got time for one more question here. How much time should parents give to small children? What is more important, quality of time or quantity of time? Well, my answer to that question is that I think the um, putting these two things at odds, quality time and quality time, I think that's a a real error that is being made and is a cliche that has become a, a means of rationalizing uh, that we don't give um, quant- quantity time to the kids. But I think children need, need, need both. You need quality time and you need quantity time and I don't think you need to sacrifice either of them Uh, I think that um, two reasons why parents are always talking about quality time as opposed to quantity time is because they're tired, they're overworked Uh, I think the other problem Nathan, as I pointed for is the ubiquitous cell phone that is distracting the proper uh, parenting today and I think also there's an imbalance in terms of the arrangement between the parents in terms of um, scheduling um, who takes care of the child. Like two people come home, both are tired. But one person should take from this day. When you come home, we're both tired. This day is your day. You take care of the child, et cetera, et cetera. You spend some time talking to the child, whatever it is. Then the next day is my day. But I don't think there's, there's, a, um, there's any need to sacrifice and use one more than the other. I think that children need quality time, the time when you spend some time individual with the child, but they also need quantity time, especially when they're young. They need so much attention that uh, it's almost like a, a whole day work. I often used to wonder why there's so much, daycares cost so much money. It's only I understand after I got grandchildren. <laughs> then I understand it's a 24 hour a day, to be honest with you, taking attention 
to properly care for them, to love them, to hug them, to kiss them, to caress them, to instruct them, to discipline them, to wash them, take them outside, bring them inside, play games, put them on the swing, a thousand things to do. Pastor, is for the, in the last 20 seconds, for the parent who says, I am struggling, I'm burned out, is it worth my effort? Well, God has given you a precious gift. Uh, it's called your little child. You're going to mold that life. And I think if you were to devote your time to it and do what you're supposed to do, you're going to see the results in that. Don't worry about the pain and the tiredness now. Look at the joy that's coming in the future. You're molding a life for Christ. That's what's really important. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.